Today's scripture reading is Genesis 25, verses 1 through 18. Again, that's Genesis 25, 1 through 18. If you want to use the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, the passage can be found on page 19. Please stand with me in honor of God's holy and inerrant word. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanuk, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Ber Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Naphish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for the reading of your holy word. We pray now for the Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of your word, that your people might hear your own voice and be built up by your truth, and that those who are still seeking you may come to find you even this morning through your word and the preaching of your good news, the gospel. I pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, church, as many of you know, this summer we have been in a sermon series in the middle chapters of the book of Genesis looking at the life of Abraham. And this morning, we're concluding that study of Genesis with uh, uh, the chapter that we just read, Genesis 25, where it records for us an account of Abraham's death. 
Now, for those of you who aren't too familiar with this biblical character, Abraham was introduced to us earlier in Genesis, in chapter 12, and he ends up becoming the forefather of the Israelite people, the Old Testament people of God. He is their patriarch. Now, in Genesis 11, and the whole story of the Tower of Babel, we looked there earlier when we were in that chapter at how the sin of humanity resulted in the confusion of languages and the fracturing of humanity into divided factions and families. But immediately after chapter 11, right on into Genesis 12, the Lord God initiated a plan to redeem the mess that we made by choosing one man and by blessing his family that they might therefore become a blessing to all the families of the earth, bringing us all back together again into one new humanity that is characterized not by confusion, but truth. And not by division, but unity. And so we've seen from Genesis 12 all the way now to Genesis 25, we've seen the Lord God carrying out this plan of redemption through Abraham and through his wife Sarah. There, there are plenty of, of ups and downs. There are plenty of, of high points and low points in their story, moments that, that where they demonstrated great faith, and at the same time, moments where they demonstrated a tragic reliance on the self. But by now, by chapter 25, the Lord God has proven himself to be faithful. In spite of our faithlessness, he is faithful, and he provides for Abraham and Sarah a son of promise who's named Isaac, and this son of promise, Isaac, now has his own wife, and he has started his own family. That's what we've seen so far. And so now, in Genesis 25, Abraham is finally living up to his name. If you recall, Abraham means father of many or father of a multitude. And I can imagine, I can imagine how for many years, that name was rather an embarrassment for him. Because God gave him, remember, that name back in Genesis 17, verse 5, when at that point all he had was one son named Ishmael. And this son he procured through sleeping with his wife's servant, Hagar. And so what he had done was he had gone many decades of his marriage struggling with infertility. He and Sarah could not have a child. And so at some point, he relies on his own wisdom and ingenuity, his own strength and ability to procure for himself an heir in his old age. And God responds in that episode during that time by changing his name and giving him the name Abraham, which again means father of a multitude. And at that time, it sounds bit like a cruel joke. I mean, that, that's like a cripple being nicknamed Speedy or giving a midget the name Goliath. You're like, wow, that's, that's kind of an insult. It's, I feel like you're, you're teasing. You're, you're making fun of them. And so by the time of his death, though, even though for many years that might, might, it might have hurt a little bit every time he's addressed as Abraham, but as we see here, by the time of his death in chapter 25, Abraham truly is, by now, a father of a multitude of nations. 
I mean, you just heard that highlighted as the text was read. Notice with me, if you're looking at the text in front of you, look with me and notice how the account of his death in verse 7, notice how it's bookended by two genealogies. The first genealogy in verses 1 to 4 lists out the children and grandchildren that he had with a concubine named Keturah. The second genealogy that's found in verses 12 to 16, it lists out the 12 grandsons of Ishmael. The, the 12 grandsons that, that Ishmael gave to him, so the sons of Ishmael. So by the time of his death at a good old age, Abraham was literally an Abraham. He was a father of a multitude of nations. There was nothing inconsistent or ironic about his name at this point. He literally was that kind of a father, a father of a multitude of nations. And to this day, a multitude of people groups in our day would actually trace their spiritual lineage all the way back to Abraham. Muslims, Jews, Christians, we would all address him as Father Abraham. We would all consider him to be a patriarch, a father of our faith. So just as in today's text, many would trace our spiritual lineage all the way back to this man. But friends, the point of today's passage, the point of our text, is that while Abraham has many children of natural descent, what we're going to call children of the flesh, the point is, is that he has only one child of supernatural descent, one child of the promise. And the focus in Genesis 25 is clearly on Abraham's child of promise and his line, his descendants. And so when you read this passage and you see this conspicuous juxtaposition of these two lineages next to each other, it raises an important question for each of us to ask ourselves. To which lineage do I belong? Which line am I in? Am I merely a child of the flesh? Or am I a child of the promise? That's the existential question that this text is asking all of us to wrestle with. And so friends, yes, I am suggesting that what you find in this passage, what you find in, in this primeval genealogy, that, that what you find here is not restricted just to the annals of ancient history, that these lineages extend all the way into our day and all the way into our own lives. We are all of one or the other. We are either mere humans of natural descent, people of the flesh, or we are new creations of supernatural origin. We are people of the promise. And I hope you come away, with, come away from this message with greater clarity as to which line of descendants that you belong in. And of course, I pray that you will receive God's invitation to join his supernatural people of the promise if you haven't done so already. There's an open invitation for you here in this text. So with all that in mind, what I want to do this morning is to highlight three contrasts between these two lineages. 
contrast between the people of the flesh and the people of the promise. And two of these contrasts are going to be found directly in our passage. A third is going to be found in Hebrews chapter 11, which offers us a uniquely Christian interpretation and summary of Abraham's story, but particularly of his death. And so it's an appropriate text for us to consider as well this morning. So if you want to follow along to see these contrasts listed out for you, look inside your bulletin. You'll see an outline, and I've written it out for you. So the first contrast we're going to consider between these two lineages, people of the flesh, people of the promise, it goes like this. While people of the flesh can enjoy God's gifts, people of the promise are recipients of all of his covenant blessings. That's the first contrast. God is merciful. God is kind. God gives good gifts to all people so that all of them may enjoy. But only his covenant people will enjoy the inheritance of heaven that is guaranteed by his covenant promises. So while the people of the flesh can experience many good things in life, those good things pale in comparison to the blessings that's found in being in a covenant relationship with the Lord. That's something you don't want to miss out on. You don't want to be content with just the good things of this earth. So take a look with me at verses 1 to 6, and we'll see this contrast. We learn in verse 1 that uh, besides Hagar, Abraham, Abraham had taken another concubine, uh, and her name was Keturah. I, I know it says there that he took her as a wife, but if you notice with me at the same time in verse 6, she's described as one of his concubines along with Hagar. So... Abraham did marry her, but according to the practices of ancient Near Eastern people, she didn't have the legal status as a, of a wife like Sarah did. So she was one of his concubines. Now, we don't know for sure if he took Keturah as a concubine while Sarah was still alive, or did it happen only after her death. Some commentators suggest that Sarah was actually around at the time, uh, and that these six sons were born to Abraham even before Isaac was born. And it's argued that, you know, if they were born after Isaac, then, then you could argue that, that their births were just as, or maybe even more miraculous and more supernatural than Isaac's, since Abraham would have been even more advanced in years when they came around. So that's why some people think that, you know, perhaps they actually were born even before the child of promise. But regardless, regardless of the timing, of when he took Keturah as a concubine, we're told here that Abraham ended up having six sons with her. And based on their names and based on the names of their grandchildren, we can extrapolate that these descendants, along with the 12 sons of Ishmael, these descendants would eventually become the people groups who occupy the Arabian Peninsula, stretching all the way to Egypt. And so they eventually become all of the various Gentile nations that surround the nation of Israel. But even though the future generations of these descendants would become, as, as we know the story goes on, they would become some of Israel's most feared enemies. They would be opponents to the people of God. Yet even so, I want you to note here how these sons of Abraham are still blessed with good gifts. They're given gifts. Look at verse 6. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. He didn't treat them harshly. He didn't neglect them. No, he provided his children of the flesh 
with good gifts. But even so, even so, Abraham made a point of reserving the blessings of the covenant for Isaac alone, his child of promise. It says in verse 5, in verse 5, that he gave all he had to Isaac. And what that means is that he gave his inheritance to Isaac alone. All the promised blessings of land and offspring, this unique mission of, of being a blessing to all the families of the earth, all of that was going to go to Isaac, and it's going to be channeled through his line, through the eventual people of Israel. And it says in verse 6 that while Abraham was still alive, he made a point of sending the sons of his concubine, quote, away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. And he did that in order to ensure that the promised land would be only in the hands of Isaac and his descendants. Now, friends, I, I know at first glance, it does seem rather harsh, right? It seems rather unloving to treat his other sons this way. I mean, you, you give all that you have to Isaac, you give all your inheritance just to him, and, and you send away your other sons with some gifts? Yeah, I, I, I know how that looks. But you have to evaluate this decision in light of the bigger narrative being told here, in light of the greater mission that God has for the nation of Israel. You see, the Lord chose Abraham, and he chose Isaac. He sets apart their descendants from all the other nations of the earth to serve as a royal priesthood, to serve as a holy nation. Israel is supposed to function as a lamp on a lampstand. It is supposed to shine forth light to the nations. And Jerusalem, as the, the capital city, is to be a city on a hill. And the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the flesh, they are all to be drawn to the light of Jerusalem, to the light of Israel. So Isaac and his line, they need to be set apart. They need to be uniquely blessed so that they can one day provide the requisite blessing that all the nations of the earth so desperately need. Here's how one commentator puts it. He said this, quote, In God's plan, these sons were sent away that there might be a true home in the end to return to. In other words, if these sons of the flesh weren't sent away now so that God's redemptive plans could be carried out through the one son of promise, then there would be no promised land for them to eventually return to in the future. This bigger missional plan is put on display for all to see in a later book in the Old Testament, in, a, in the prophetic book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 60, the prophet points to this future day when the future descendants of the other sons of Abraham will now in that day come to the light of the Lord as this light is shining through the people of Israel. Listen to Isaiah 60 and you're going to actually hear some of the same names that were found in our text. Some of the names of the other sons of Abraham. And if you want to turn there with me, go ahead. Isaiah 60 and just keep a finger in our text and, and you'll see the same names being referenced. So let me read Isaiah 60 starting in verse 3. It begins by saying, And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
Lift up your eyes all around and see. They are gathered together. The nations, they come to you. Verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. They're referenced in our text in verse 4. That's one of the sons of Abraham and one of his grandsons. And all those from, from Sheba. Again, that's, that's also there in verse 3. That's another grandson of Abraham. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar, a grandson of, of, of Abraham through Ishmael, found in our passage in verse 13. They shall be gathered to you, and the rams of Neboth shall minister to you. Again, another grandson of Abraham. So you see, just in that text, you see five sons or grandsons of the flesh referenced in this prophecy. And all of their descendants are gathering to Israel, coming to the people of the promise, bringing good news, bringing praise, bringing good gifts of gold and frankincense. And of course, the mention of those gifts draws our mind immediately to the wise men, the Gentile wise men who came from where? From the east, bringing with them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the baby Jesus, who, by the way, is the ultimate son of promise that Isaac merely prefigured. So you see, friends, if the other sons of Abraham were not sent away, if Isaac and his line were not uniquely preserved and uniquely blessed, then there would not have been a Messiah born in Israel. The hope of the nations would not have been born God's plan all along was to choose one nation, enter into a covenant relationship with them, and extra extravagantly bless them so that a Messiah, an anointed son of the promise, would fulfill that mission of blessing all the nations of the earth, of drawing confused and divided peoples to himself from every nation, reversing the effects of Babel. That was the mission of the Messiah, creating one new humanity in himself marked by truth and unity. And that all begins by Abraham sending away his sons of, of his concubines and blessing his one particular son of promise. Now, again, I know this still might not sit well with some of you. I know this idea of, of God choosing one child over another. Whether you're talking about choosing Abel over Cain or, or Isaac over Ishmael or Jacob over Esau. I, I know that doesn't sit well with many. Or how he chooses one nation over others and how he extravagantly blesses that nation. I, I know how that can be interpreted as rather exclusive, rather elitist. It seems to foster a sense of superiority among that particular blessed people. What I'm arguing is that we only come to that conclusion if we have misunderstood and misinterpreted God's purpose in choosing. Being chosen by God is not grounds for boasting. It's a call to missions. 
The chosen ones are not being complimented because they're just so great. They're being compelled to action. To be a great channel of blessing, of God's blessing to the nations. Namely, by proclaiming the good news of how anyone in the world, anyone of any people group, can join us in a covenant relationship with God by receiving his one son, our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He died for our sins. He was raised for our redemption. And if you put your trust in Jesus, the good news is that you can change your lineage. You can change your lineage. You can experience a supernatural rebirth and you can convert from being merely a child of the flesh to becoming a child of the promise. That, my friends, is an open invitation to all. You can become a child of the promise even this day by believing, by trusting in Jesus' name. Friends, if your experience of Christianity does feel a bit exclusive and elitist, well, Christians and our poor behavior are really to blame for that. Christianity itself is not to blame. God's sovereign plan to send away the other sons of Abraham to extravagantly bless Isaac and his line so that the true child of the promise would one day arrive and perform his redemptive work, turning now the people of the promise into a channel of blessing to bless all the peoples of the earth. That's not harsh. That's not unloving. That's actually the good news of the gospel. That's what we're here for, to hear the gospel, to worship God in light of his good work through his people. So that's the first contrast I want us to consider. The people of the flesh can enjoy good gifts, but it's really the people of the promise who are set apart to both receive covenant blessings and to be a channel of those blessings to the world. That's a stark difference, a stark contrast in life. But friends, I also want you to notice there's also a big difference in death. So this leads to our second contrast. While people of the flesh can hope to die after a good long life, It's people of the promise who can hope to live again after death. In other words, if you you are merely a natural person, a person of the flesh, then the most that you can hope for in life is limited to this life. So your best hope is for death to be delayed, to not come calling until you are well along, advanced in years. But as we're going to see, from Abraham's experience. Death after a good long life, while it is a blessing in itself, that blessing pales in in comparison to the experience of new life after death. So look with me in in verses 7 to 8. Verse 7, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years. And was gathered to his people. Now, that's what I think all of us would want written in our obituary when it's our time to go. That we died in a good old age as an old man or an old woman full of years. I mean, so far in our study of Genesis, we've come across a number of deaths. But no one's death to this point has been described like this. This is is different. This paints a picture of completeness. 
of satisfaction. I mean, there's no regrets here. He, he lived a good long life and he was ready to go. Now just think about how long Abraham lived and all that he experienced in that time. It says that he died at the age of 175. Now if you recall, he was 100 when he had Isaac. And uh, based on what we're told later of when Isaac had his sons, his twin grandsons, Jacob and Esau, so Abraham's twin grandsons, Jacob and Esau, were 15 years old when Abraham died. So he saw them grow up into their teen years. And again, we're not even mentioning his other children and grandchildren that he saw grow up. So by the time of his death, Abraham was blessed to see all of his children grow up and to see them have children of their own and to see those grandchildren grow up. I mean, that is something I'm sure all of us want. We all hope to be so blessed to live long enough to see the same thing, to see our children grow old, to see them have their own families. I mean, that's something that I think all of us want. And that's because it is a blessing. Scripture considers it a blessing to die at a good old age. Now, that's not to say that, that there aren't some challenges, there aren't some difficulties that come with aging. I mean, yes, there, there is reason to fear the effects of things like dementia, to be worried about the loss of your memory, the loss of, of, of your mental faculties, the, the, the loss of your own sense of identity. Those of you who, ha who have to take care of aging parents who are facing such challenges, I, I get it, that, that you might have a more pessimistic view of, of, of living to a good old age. I, I, I understand why that might not seem as attractive to you because of what you're, what you're experiencing in taking care of, of, of your parents who are struggling with some of these challenges. So I don't want to minimize those fears or those concerns of, of getting older. But I'm fairly certain that we'd all consider dying young to be a tragedy and would prefer that death come for us at an older age. And so dementia aside, the thought of dying in a good old age as an old man full of years, that sounds pretty good to me. And I'm, I'm going to assume that sounds pretty good to you as well. But my whole point is that for the natural person, that final outcome is as good as it gets. But what if there's more? What if there's something more? What if there's something better than to die after a good long life? What if you can actually live again after that inevitable death? Friends, that's the very hope that the supernatural people of the promise have. And that hope is alluded to for us at the end of verse 8. Look at the end of verse 8. It says, and he, Abraham, was gathered to his people. It didn't say Abraham was gathered to his tomb, that he was gathered to his burial cave. No, it says he was gathered to his people. Now, we're told later on in verse 10 that he was buried in the same cave that he purchased to bury Sarah. So we know he wasn't buried in his family's ancestral tomb. So when scripture says that he was gathered to his people, what else can that mean? What else could that be referring to but to a sweet reunion in new life after death with those who have also died trusting in the Lord? That's what it's referring to. 
for Abraham, of course, that would have included Sarah, his wife who died previously. That would also include any others in his household who died in faith. We're talking about a sweet reunion. We're talking about being gathered to them. That's what the people of the promise have to look forward to. Our story doesn't end in a tomb. From the eyes of faith, death has been transformed for us. It it doesn't lead to a lonely resting place in the dirt, but rather to a gathering. A gathering of those who have died in faith, of, of those who share in a living hope of resurrection. We'll see them again. When we die, we will be gathered to our people, to the people of God. I mean, that's the best hope. Because even if you don't end up personally living to a good old age, or even if your loved ones don't reach an old age full of years, you can still hope in life after death. You can still hope in a sweet reunion with the fellowship of the faithful in Christ. You can still look forward to that. It's, if, if that, my friends, is what awaits us in death, then we have no need to fear it. We have no need to obsess in delaying it. Finding the fountain of youth, seeking immortality, those would all be vain pursuits. There's no need for that. In in J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth, the the elves are the race of, 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 are the race that's found in Middle Earth. They're the only ones that possess immortality. What that means is that they they never grow old. Even if they're killed in battle, they don't actually die in the normal sense. They don't actually leave Middle Earth. What happens to them is that they're just restored and they're transported to this land called Valinor. It's this glorious land, but it's still a land bound within the material world, bound within Middle Earth. It's actually only the race of men that actually get to die in a normal sense. After death, they face judgment, and then they depart beyond this material existence, this this mortal realm, and they go to the unknown realms of the afterlife. So even in a world where immortal creatures exist, it's actually the race of men that are said to be blessed with the gift of a Luvatar. Now, Luvatar is basically the, the creator god figure in Middle-earth. It's only men who have been blessed with this gift of a Luvatar. And that gift, of course, is referring to their mortal death. The elves, yes, they, they, may, they might be able to live forever on Middle-earth, but they never get the chance to see what's on the other side. They're bound to this earth. But in the stories of, of Middle-earth, the, the, the humans were often jealous of the elves' immortality, and they often despised Iluvatar's gift. They didn't want this gift. They wanted to live forever like the elves, and it's that very attitude that often brought ruin to the human race. Now, if you think about it, Tolkien was brilliant. He was on to something. I mean, you might have read the books, watched the movies, and And you might have missed this nuance of what he's trying to communicate. He recognized that it would be vain folly for any of us to seek to live for endless years in this life when the hope of eternal bliss in a heavenly abode can actually await us after death. For the Christian, 
For the child of the promise, death no longer needs to be feared as an enemy. Death can be received as a gift, a gift from our God. Now, I, I hope that that does make you wonder, what is my attitude towards death? Do I see it that way? And what does that reveal about my true belief of what's going to happen to me after death? Do I face death with the crippling fear and denial that characterizes the people of the flesh? Or do I approach death with the reverent fear and gratitude that characterizes the people of the promise? Friends, you can make a choice, even this day, to change your faith, to change your lineage and align yourself with the people of the promise. To know with confidence what awaits you after death. So our second contrast that we've seen here between the two lineages does relate to death and your attitude towards it. Well, the third contrast, it also has to do with death. If you're following along, it goes like this. While the people of the flesh can only die in peace if their hopes are met in this earthly life, people of the promise can die in peace knowing their unrealized hopes await a better country. In other words, if you only live once, if this earthly life is all you're going to get, then you will only die in peace. You will only die without regrets if you can manage to meet all of your hopes and achieve all of your dreams in this one life. But Abraham and his descendants demonstrate that you can actually die in peace without regrets even if your hopes and dreams have to wait for an ultimate fulfillment in the afterlife. That's what this third contrast reveals. So let's go back to verse 7 and, and consider again that age when he died, 175 years. Now back in Genesis 12, we're told that Abraham was 75 years old when he was called to leave Ur of the Chaldeans to journey to the promised land. And so that means that for the last 100 years of his life, it was spent as a pilgrim, as a sojourner in a land that was promised to him by God, but a land that he technically didn't own. By the end of his life, the only portion of the promised land under his name that he actually owned was this cave and, and, and this field that the cave belonged in, this cave that he and Sarah would eventually be buried in. So by the time of his death, Abraham was under no illusion that the promised land was to be his final hope and resting place. Because if he did think that way, if all of his hope was resting in the physical promised land, then he wouldn't, wouldn't have been described as dying in a good old age full of years. It would have been more like full of regrets, full of frustration. But of course, that's not how he's described in death. He is described as dying fulfilled, as ending his years on this earth contented. That's, that's the feeling you get when you read his death. And it only makes sense when you realize that his eyes were actually fixed on another land, on a better country, one that was still awaiting for the future. And that's exactly what we're told in a New Testament text that comments on Abraham's death. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is commonly known as the hall of faith. There the author of Hebrews is putting forth a whole number of Old Testament saints as encouraging examples of faith 
that we are to aspire after. And many verses in that hall of faith are dedicated right, right to Abraham and Sarah. And starting in Hebrews 11, verse 13, we get commentary on Abraham's attitude towards death and on his hope of a better country, a heavenly one. So listen to Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Now, if they had been seeking, they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, then they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, friends, you have to realize that Abraham died having received very little of the things that God promised. I I think many people in his shoes if they came to the end of their life in that situation, they would have been disappointed. They would have been resentful towards the end of their life. I mean, come on, Lord, you, you called me to leave my homeland, to leave my, my, my family, to journey to a strange new land that's occupied by warring tribes and factions. And you promised all this land to me as far as my eyes could see. And yet for the rest of my days, for a hundred years, I lived as a pilgrim and sojourner, never able to settle down, never able to own anything except a burial cave. And you promised me children as numerous as the sands, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And yet you only gave me one legitimate son that could be my heir. And he only gave me two grandsons. That's it. That's all I've got. Lord, you've certain, certainly promised me a lot. You've certainly raised my hopes, but here I am on my deathbed and I see very little fulfilled. I could totally imagine that kind of response at the end of that kind of life where so many hopes go unrealized, where so many dreams go unfulfilled. But Hebrews eleven thirteen says that Abraham died, not in frustration, but in faith. Not having received the things promised, but that's okay. He was still able to die in peace at a good old age, full of years, because he knew that the things that God promised to him would find their ultimate fulfillment in a better country, in a heavenly land, in a future city that comes down from the heavens to be established on a new earth. That's what his eyes were ultimately fixed on. So friends, I want you to have the same thing. I want you to be able to face your death with the same kind of faith. But if all your hopes are pinned on this earthly life, if they have to be fulfilled in the here and now, then I fear that you will be ill-prepared for death. You won't go in peace. You'll go kicking and screaming because you will inevitably have hopes and dreams go unfulfilled in this life. But my friend, that, that is exactly why Jesus came and lived and died and rose again 
to make a way for you and I to have life beyond death. So that this is not all that we get. He came to give us a chance to settle in a better country. A country where there will be no regrets, where all tears are gone, because in that heavenly land, all of God's promises will come true. All of our hopes will be realized in Christ. That's the good news of Jesus' gospel. And so if you want that, if you want to face death with that kind of faith, with that kind of hope, then only one lineage is going to give you that. What you need is to receive a supernatural rebirth to become a child of the promise. And the good news is this. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it speaks directly to this need of yours. It says, to all who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. So that's it. Receive Jesus. Believe in his name. And join us in the lineage of the children of promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text that confronts us with the reality of death, but comforts us with the promise and the hope of new life and eternal life beyond death. Oh Lord, we thank you for this hope that we have in the promised Son of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. In his name we pray.